Good morning, Ascent family. How we doing? Good. I love it. Um, well, as Chris was saying, I know we have new people with us every week. So I want to shout out those of you that are new. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is Aisha. I get to serve as the prayer pastor here. And one of the things I'm really excited that we are doing as a church, it's, and it's something that I want to make sure everyone in here, everyone watching online is aware of, is something called Rhythms of Grace. And each month, we are focusing on a specific spiritual practice, which is simply a way to connect with God. And we know that our sense of spiritual rhythm has been disrupted because of COVID, because of life, because of things that are happening in the world, things that are happening in our community. So we want to be intentional about leaning into those rhythms. And last month, our first rhythm was solitude. And this month, we are leaning into lament. And a simple definition for lament is simply a prayer in pain where we turn to God. When loss, when grief, when disappointment, when discouragement, when suffering comes our way, or when it comes in the lives of those we love, those we call friends and family and children, we have an opportunity to lean into lament. So I wanna invite you to do two things. One, join us this month as we lean into lament. If you look on our website, you'll find some resources and some things that you can lean into on your own at home. And then also, if you are free today at 11.30, you can join us in the Tire Center for Catalyst Conversations. And that is simply a space where we truly break this thing on down and have a conversation about it. So if you are free, join us. But today, I have the privilege of continuing on in our Journey Through John series. But before we get to John, I need y'all to journey with me through my most recent trip to Florida. So last week, I got to visit some family out in Florida, and I can't tell y'all the last time that I have been in a place where there is humidity. Now, um, some of y'all probably already know where I'm going. So um, it was a humbling experience for me um, within two hours to go from Aisha Cox, you know, with my curls, to Aisha Jackson with an afro. And um, what I mean by that is that I truly looked like a lost member of the Jackson Five, and I was actually trying to take a picture in the backseat of the lift, and Marisa's like, I know you were not taking a picture. Like, why would you do that? Because my hair looks so bad. And I wanted to tell y'all what had happened was, All right, cool. Now I got to be careful when I get the handheld because then I get real comfortable and stuff happens, but that's all right. So what happened is uh, my grandmother had got her hair straightened and my hair was curly. I seen that it was going to be scattered showers. So I was like, Grandma, I got you. I love you. You are my world. Take my jacket. I'll take yours. And that's when the afro came. Um, her hair was perfectly fine and I had to wear a scarf the rest of the trip. It's fine. I'm not bitter about it. Also, the night that I arrived, 
um, my little cousins had went to Universal Studios for the first time, and they got to get exposed to E.T. Does anyone remember the movie E.T. came out? Yes, yes, okay. So they decided when they came home for family night, we should watch the movie E.T. And I'm like, can we watch like Encanto, like something new, something more exciting? But they were really set on E.T., which I'm surprised because, you know, technology has definitely upgraded in so many ways. But I pushed aside my preferences and we watched E.T. It low-key haunted my little cousin who's only two, but that's all right. She has this interesting relationship with E.T. now. It's also important that I let you all know that on my trip to Florida, my flight got delayed about six or so hours. So instead of leaving Monday at 7 p.m., which was the plan, we ended up boarding our plane a little after 1 a.m., which means we didn't land till a little after 6 a.m., which means we didn't land at the Airbnb till about 8 a.m. So what this means is that my sleep was thrown off. If you know me, I'm a night owl, but this just really messed me up in a different way. But I don't get to see my family often. So it was worth a sacrifice for me. And I bring this up, yes, to make y'all laugh and just give you an insight, but this is how my sermon prep works. So I am in Florida and I'm just reflecting like, man, I'm, I'm reflecting on the things that I'm willing to do for those that I love. And I want to pose this question to all of you. What are you willing to do for those you love? Are you willing to set aside your preferences, your agenda, your plan? Are you sacrificing sleep for those that you love? All the parents and grandparents, all the parents can say amen. Are you doing a deep dive right now in research when it comes to finding the best way that you can care for those you love or someone specific that you love? Finding the best doctors, the best treatment, the best counselors, the best path forward. This morning, I want us to keep that question in mind. What are you willing to do for those you love? And before I say anything else, let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as a community, to be in your word, to worship, and to just learn more about you. Holy Spirit, I surrender all my notes, all the things that have been changing this morning. I surrender it over to you. I ask God that you would just speak through me and you would speak personally and powerfully to every person under the sound of my voice. Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in John 13 today, and I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. And normally I would try to break the verses down in small chunks, but I want us to get the full picture of what is happening in this text up front, and then we will zoom in, if you will, line by line, Um, for the remainder of our time. So I'm going to start off at John 13, 1. It says, Jesus knew that the night before Passover would be his last night on earth before leaving this world to return to the Father's side. All throughout this time with his disciples, 
Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them. And now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. Before their evening meal had begun, the accuser had already deeply embedded betrayal into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now Jesus was fully aware that the Father had placed all things under his control, for he had come from God and was about to go back to be with him. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer robe, and took a towel and wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' dirty feet and dry them with his towel. But when Jesus got to Simon Peter, he objected and said, I can't let you wash my dirty feet. You're my Lord. Jesus replied, you don't understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing, but soon it will be clear to you. Peter looked at Jesus and said, you'll never wash my dirty feet, never. But Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, Jesus responded, then you will not be able to share life with me. So Peter said, Lord, in this case, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head too. Jesus said to him, you are already clean. You've been washed completely and you just need your feet to be cleansed. But that can't be said of all of you. For Jesus knew which one was about to betray him. And that's why he told them that not all of them were clean. After washing their feet, he put his robe on and turned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I just did, Jesus said. If I could sum up these verses in one sentence, it would simply be this. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So what is Jesus willing to do for those he loves? Well, it's no secret. He's willing to wash their feet. And I don't know about how all of you feel in this room. If we were to be like, okay, we're going to switch this to a feet washing service. You're going to turn to your neighbor. I would love to see what your facial reaction would be on that. But beyond the surface, there's a lot that meets the eye to what is happening in this passage. So let's break it down. The disciples, along with Jesus, are gathered together on a Thursday night to celebrate the Passover meal. And the Passover was first given by God to Moses in Exodus 12. And the purpose was to commemorate the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites were spared from this deathly plague. And in order to be spared, they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And this caused the Lord to pass over their homes and protect them. This was something to be remembered and celebrated from generation to generation. Verse 1 says that Jesus knew that Thursday would be his last night on earth. Other translations say that Jesus knew his hour had come. Earlier in John 7, religious leaders, you know, they stay hating on Jesus. They try to arrest him. But it says no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Hour in the Greek means divinely preset time. He was on heaven's agenda. No one could rush or delay this moment. If you knew you had one final evening here on earth, what would be the last things that you'd want to do? What would be the foods that you want to eat? 
Who would be the people that you'd want to spend it with? So there's an iconic song that came to my mind as I was studying and had all my books out in front of my desk. Um, Y'all know I am not a singer. I'm a little scary again because I got this mic in my hand right now. But I am going to sing it for you, and I'm going to ask you, Freddie, don't leave me hanging. I'm going to ask you, if you know this song, I say at least 50% of you should, do not leave me hanging. Okay? I didn't hear nothing, okay? Okay. Here goes. It's really different when you practice this, you know, at home in your room. Like, I have no idea what's going to sound when it comes to the microphone. But here it goes. Maurice is going to judge me, and it's fine. Y'all ready? Okay. Oh my gosh, I cannot take myself seriously. It's going to be a different voice. And here we go. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love? That's family right there. Can we just clap it up? Y'all see the fear? Did y'all see the fear trying to take me over? I pushed through, I pushed through. But I was thinking about that song, and yes, it's before my time, but it's something about this passage that what's love got to do with it just kept ringing in my mind. And I feel like I have a lot of questions as we go through this text. If we were to ask Jesus, having read what we read, what's love got to do with it? I think Jesus' response would be this, everything. Love has everything to do with it. Jesus chose to spend his final hours with those that he loved. His, those 12 individuals, those 12 disciples that he has walked closely with for the past three years. Verse 1 continues saying that all throughout his time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them and now long to show them the full measure of his love. Love has everything to do with this moment, and I'm so glad it's not just a second-hand emotion, as Tina Turner said. And love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is patient, it is kind, it is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustices, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that love is not merely a feeling. Love is not merely an emotion. Love is marked by intentional action. Love is marked by intentional action. And this translation that I just read is most common. We've heard it at weddings. But I know sometimes that we can become too familiar with something. And when that happens, we tend to minimize the significance or think that there's nothing else that this passage can offer us. So I wanted to read it again to you from the Passion Translation. It's very different. It says, love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. 
Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. This offers a fresh perspective on a very familiar and common passage for a lot of us. And as I read it, the first line really jumped out at me. Love is large and incredibly patient. I read that and I said, oh, yes, it is. And 1 Corinthians 13 lets us know what love is. But 1 John 4, 8 tells us who love is. And that passage says that God is love. And I don't know anything or anyone that is larger than God. Romans 8, 38 through 39 also gives us some insight on the magnitude of love. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love has everything to do with it. Love is also incredibly patient. Not only did Jesus have to patiently wait for his hour to come, but he also had to be patient with his disciples. And y'all know his disciples had a lot of questions. They often didn't understand what he was talking about. They often said foolish things. They doubted, although they had Jesus right there with them for three years. But Jesus didn't give up on them. Love doesn't do that. He continued to journey with them. The text says that Jesus longed to show them the full demonstration of his love. Again, love is an intentional action. It goes on to say that before the meal, the enemy had already planted that seed in Judas's heart to betray him. Yet it says that Jesus was fully aware that the Father had placed all things under his control, for he had come from God and was about to go back to be with him. Y'all, Jesus wasn't surprised at the fact that Judas, one of his chosen 12, who has walked closely with him for the past three years, was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. John 6, if you read it, tells us that from the beginning, Jesus knew who his traitor was. And Jesus knew is a phrase that is repeated in this chapter, but also through this book. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus knew about the betrayal, yet he loved Judas and didn't treat him differently from the other disciples. Jesus knew that his hour had come, and he stayed the course. Jesus knew that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And when you know who you are, you don't have to prove who you are. And what I see in Jesus in this moment is that he was secure in his identity. 
He was secure in the Father's love. He knew the divine plan and the events that had to happen in order for him to be returned to the right hand of the Father, at the Father's side. So Jesus demonstrated his love through sacrificial service. Jesus demonstrated his love through sacrificial service. Now today, if you were at someone's house and you guys were eating dinner and out of nowhere, they just kneeled to their feet and started washing your feet, that would be kind of weird. You'll be like, what are you, what are you doing? No, no, sir. No, ma'am. You know what? Please, please, no. Don't touch my feet. It's kind of, you know, boundaries. Don't do that. But back then it was common. This is something that would happen before a meal was served. And the host would not be the one to wash the guest's feet because that was a humiliating task. That was a job reserved for the lowliest of servants, a slave even. Yet in this moment, this wasn't an act of humiliation for Jesus. It was an act of humility. Jesus got up from the meal. He got up from a comfortable position, willingly, that's important, to a lower one. And scholars would say that the tables back then were very low. So it makes sense that feet would be something that's not only distracting, but a little bit unsanitary too. So they needed to be washed. It says in the text that Jesus, he got up from the meal and then he took off his robe. And this is symbolic of Jesus laying aside his glory. Again, John has a lot to say about this in previous chapters. In John 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Other translations says that the word became human and made his home among us. And that's what Jesus did when he came to earth. The text goes on to say that he tied a towel around his waist. And y'all, this was symbolic of him saying, I am coming as a servant. I came here not to be served, but to serve. It was an outward sign of the inward posture of his heart. The next thing that Jesus did is he pours water into a bowl. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And y'all, he didn't have any sanitizer. He didn't have any gloves. He used his hands. And I really appreciate that this translation emphasizes and said the disciples' feet were dirty. They were walking on dirt roads. They didn't have any pavements. These roads were filthy. They were muddy. They had animal droppings on them. It was a dirty job. But we don't have a, a distant God. We have a God that doesn't mind getting close. Jesus was not afraid or put off by their filth. And that, for me, is very encouraging to know. So foot washing in itself wasn't shocking. It was the one who was doing it. What other king do you know gets on his knees and washes the feet of another? The most powerful person in the room took the least desirable job. Jesus came 
not to be served, but to serve. I wonder how long it took Jesus to wash 12 disciples' feet. What we see in scripture is that Jesus is never in a hurry. So it wasn't this quick thing like, all right, I'm going to wash yours. Okay, Peter. Okay, Simon. No. I imagine Jesus taking his time. It says that he wanted to do that to demonstrate his love. So he was very intentional. That's that patience again, right? What was the atmosphere like in the room? What were the disciples thinking? What were they saying? And again, our friend Peter, who says a lot of the things and does a lot of the things that we would do, he is totally confused. And he tells Jesus, you can't wash my feet, Lord. This doesn't make sense because Jesus is the master. I should be serving you. But Jesus teaches Peter in this moment that no one is above serving not even Jesus. And when I read scripture, I like to envision myself in that person's shoes of whoever I'm reading. And also how I'm wired, I like to envision it on a screen. So do I have any Bridgerton fans in the room, perhaps? A few, y'all know what that show is? Okay, okay. So I started to imagine what this would be like on the backdrop of Bridgerton. And I imagine, you know, the disciples are all men, so I get to give you a female's perspective on this. I imagine I imagine looking so confused and in awe and in shock. My Lord, you can't wash my feet. It is not right, your grace. Puzzled, confused. Peter gets a lot of slack, but a lot of us just imagine Jesus kneeling in front of you about to wash your feet. What are the thoughts that are going in your mind? Then I start to envision this if it was on Inventing Anna. And Inventing Anna is this German heiress that I'm gonna use with air quotes. And I imagine her just looking at Jesus, taking a step back. And Anna got a little attitude. So Anna would probably say something like, don't be basic, I'll call a servant. You don't do that. You're the king. You can't wash my feet. I'll find somebody else to do that. Then I put the Netflix away and imagine what I would do in that moment. Jesus, you're Jesus. You can't wash my feet. Besides, I've literally been out in the streets all day. Those roads are nasty. And I don't know the last time I had a pedicure, so you probably really, really don't want to do that. 
I couldn't imagine what it's like in that, in that moment. And I understand Peter. And then Jesus responds back to him and he says, you don't understand yet what I'm doing, but soon it will be made clear to you. And I think those are Jesus' words to a lot of us in this room right now. For the person who is confused by their circumstances, for the person who just got that health diagnosis, for the person who is devastated by a heartbreak, the person who feels like their season of waiting is just going and going and going and they don't see an end in sight, for the person who desires community in a deeper level, and you continue to put yourself out there, you continue to be bold and reach out, yet you still feel alone and by yourself. And I feel Jesus is saying, you don't understand right now, but one day you will. Peter claps back again and he says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. I'm not having it. That just doesn't make sense. And then Jesus responds, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you will not be able to share life with me. And then Peter has a very quick change of heart. He's like, well, in that case, give me a whole shower, wash my hands, wash my head. He's trying to show Jesus that he's committed and dedicated to him. Jesus' response in verse 10 is, you are already clean. You've been washed completely. You just need your feet to be cleansed. But that can't be said of all of you. For Jesus knew, there goes that phrase again, which one was about to betray him. Jesus was saying, Peter, you're already saved. You don't need to be saved again. And John 15, 3 tells us that we are made clean simply by believing in Jesus, by believing in his words, by believing that he is who he says he is. We are saved, washed completely when we believe in Jesus and put our faith in him. But just because we are followers of Jesus doesn't mean we won't have struggles, doesn't mean we won't still wrestle with sin. David, who is written in scripture, said to be a man after God's own heart. You know, the young boy who defeated the giant Goliath with a slingshot and some rocks. David was a man after God's own heart, but he still struggled with sin. He slept with another man's wife and then plotted to have that man killed. But this is a man after God's own heart. Because of the love that Jesus has for us, we can lean into confession and examination. Because of the love that Jesus has for us, we can lean into confession and examination. And it's through these practices that we experience the continual cleansing and heart renewal that Jesus offers us. One of the verses that I used to cling to when um, I was really struggling with stuff you know, out in college. It says, if we confess, that came out weird. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess to God about something, we know something's not right within. We have an awareness. We know that we behaved in a way that goes against Christ's character. We know that we are holding on to unforgiveness and we don't want to forgive, although we know we should forgive. We simply don't want to. We know that whatever's going on in here is causing me to lash out at my kids or at my spouse or just leaking in other areas of my life because something's going on in here. And that's when we lean into confession. I think David also does this in a way in Psalm 51.10. He says, create in me a clean and pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. If David is asking God to create in him a pure heart, he knows there's some stuff in there that ain't pure. But there's also some things that we don't have awareness of. Things that we have to invite God to search our hearts. Invite God to expose it. Invite God to bring it to our attention. And David is a great example of this in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Jesus goes on in this passage to tell them, just as he, the master, washed their feet, they should follow his example and do the same for each other. In the beginning, I mentioned that Jesus and the disciples were celebrating the Passover meal. And that a significant aspect of the Passover meal and what happened in Exodus was that blood being shed on the doorposts from the lamb. This moment in scripture is not just about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but it is also foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do on the cross. How Jesus is willingly going to shed his blood for us. What he did on that night, washing their feet, serving them, he did in a greater fashion at the cross. And John has been building up this moment from the very beginning. Because in John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Love has everything to do with it. Love led Jesus to demonstrate his love through a posture of a servant and by washing his disciples' feet. It was also that same love that led Jesus to the cross. John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's love. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ came and died for us. Jesus came to be served, not to serve. And at this moment, the worship team can make their way up to the stage. Family, I want to ask you a question. What gets in the way of you serving like Jesus served? There's a few things that came up to mind for me. One is pride. One, we don't think we should serve anyone. We don't want to serve anyone. Serving feels beneath us. And maybe that's something that we don't voice out loud, but it's something that our actions, again, our actions can communicate. But one of my favorite quotes that Jesus embodies in this passage says this, if serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. If serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. Is busyness getting the way of how we serve? Is unforgiveness? Because it's hard to serve people when you got unforgiveness lurking and growing in your heart. There's a lot of sermons that I heard growing up as a kid that equated unforgiveness to poison. And a lot of times we think when we are not forgiving someone that we are doing damage to them, but really we're doing more damage to ourselves. Our heart is getting hardened. And that negatively impacts the way that Jesus is telling us to serve. Do we deem others as unworthy? Who are we to judge who is worthy and not worthy? Jesus didn't skip over Jesus. Jesus didn't skip over Judas. And in that moment when I read that, I'm like, Jesus, how, how come you didn't just like accidentally knock the basin over in the waterfall so you don't have to touch Judas' feet? You'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. But no, he still washed Jewish, Judas' feet knowing that he would betray him. There's another thing that, uh, that came to mind in this passage. Does a lack of self-love get in the way of us serving like Jesus? Our ability to love is often shaped by our experience of love. And part of the great command to love our neighbors is ourselves. Well, how do we really do that if we don't truly love ourselves, if we don't truly know what that is like? Hmm. In January 2020, I went with a team of women from Ascent to Cuba. And for Cuba, we were putting on a women's conference. I was terrified. I was excited. And one of the parts that terrified me when I got there is knowing that we were going to be washing the women's feet. Now, if I could be real, I was like, what do their feet look like? I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to feel if I touch a bunion or a corn or it's dirty. I don't have any gloves. These are my real life thoughts in the moment. And I was not ready for what I experienced. If y'all could put that picture on the screen if you have it. This is a picture of my friend Mary. Um, as we are washing the women's feet. And y'all, this is a intimate moment. This is a holy moment. 
for women who have never had someone wash their feet. Women who have never had someone not only wash their feet, but say, hey, I see you. You are loved. You are valued. And I put up this picture of Mary. Mary also led our huddle this morning. Um, Because Mary is someone in my life who has lived out what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. To serve others. Later in the passage, he says, I give you this new commandment. Love each other as much as I have loved you. For when you demonstrate that same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my true followers. Jesus had an unconditional, sacrificial, and humble love. It wasn't about his agenda. And that's what he tells us to do. The last thing that I want you to let you know is the love of Jesus is demonstrated when we serve one another. Would you pray with me? God, today we've been able to sit in the weight of your love. Thank you that your love is large and incredibly patient. We thank you, God, that you love us in spite of us. We thank you, God, that you love us when we deny you, when we reject you, when we seek you last. We thank you for giving us the pattern to follow, the example to follow. God, we just invite you into our hearts right now. If there's anything in our heart that is not of you, that is getting in the way of us serving how you've called us to serve, we ask that you would reveal it to us. God, I am in awe that you would serve your disciples, that you came on earth to serve, that you not only love the world, but you love me, you love us, it is personal. And God, the only response that we can have to that is gratitude, is one of praise, is one of worship. Help us to live a life where we know we are deeply loved, where we abide in that love, and we demonstrate that love by serving those we know and those we don't. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.